0: founder and owner of Saturated Ice Cream, based in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, this was a sweet interview for me, and not only because we get to talk about delicious ice cream. Lokalani grew up in the Bay Area in California and then moved to Oregon, and we talk about her background, how her dad is half Filipino, half Mexican, her stepfather is of Danish and Sicilian descent, and how she grew up in a Black household with her grandmother being a really big part of her life. And so when you think about ice cream and creating different flavor profiles, she combines this wide-ranging heritage and all her travels into about 350 different flavors of ice cream. I mean, just wild. We talk about her goal and purpose for the company, and it's not just to have people feel joy while eating her ice cream, but it's feeling connection. And I wasn't surprised when I heard that one reviewer cried when they ate her Magnolia flavor ice cream. And that she got a standing ovation from 250 people at an event for her ice cream. I mean, talk about connection. Now, one thing that I took away from this conversation and I'm inspired by is Lokalani's just ability to do. You know, we talk about just doing the thing, whatever it is, but do it for yourself. And there's a part where she shares what it felt like to be serving for someone else's dream and how that was a catalyst for her creating her own line of ice cream. Lokalani has remarkable self-awareness, and she has this strong ability to be comfortably uncomfortable. And we talk about that, and then the challenges that she puts herself through, and just to test the limits. You know, for example, she started at a company during the pandemic, and six months later, she got a book deal, and she's now writing a book, which is just incredible. Please enjoy this interview with the delightful founder, Lokalani Alabanza. Hi, Lokalani. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on and happy, happy new year for just to timestamp this conversation. It's the first interview I've done in 2023. So I'm very excited to welcome in the new year with a very sweet interview. Yay, I'm excited. Thank you. I wanted to thank Mia Osaki for introducing us because she was the first person that connected me with you and the saturated ice cream brand. And I remember I met her actually on a flight and she had such a beautiful light and energy to her. And it's one of those that I'm the type that I put on my earbuds right away and I zone people out on an airplane. And she just had this warmth about her. And I'm like, I need to talk to this woman. So we're talking about the show and inspiration and and inspiring profiles. And she goes, you need to speak with Lokalani. So thank you to Mia Osaki for the introduction. She's really wonderful. Before we get into your amazing work as this ice cream maker, entrepreneur extraordinaire, I always like to start at the very beginning because a lot of my listeners like to just hear where you're from and your childhood and all that. So if you don't mind sharing with my listeners where you grew up.
1: So I was born in the Bay Area in East Palo Alto, California. I was born in Redwood City, but in the Bay. I was there probably until I was about 10-ish. And we moved to Santa Maria, California. And then I turned 12 and my sister was born in 93, which dates me, which ages me right there. <laughs> We moved to Oregon. So I am a West Coast kid through and through. It's the coast that I know the best that I, I have no desire to move back, which is funny. So yeah, I went to middle school, high school in Oregon. Ever since I moved to the South, I've never been more proud to be Californian, which is very funny. I talk with a lot. I grew up in a very Black community as a kid. And then we moved to Oregon and I was the only person that looked like me walking around middle school and high school. So it was a huge change for me.
0: And what prompted the move? So my
1: stepfather, who's my dad, my dad's stepfather, which is so funny, they're all engineers, had a company and it was this big move for our families, like come work for this company. So my parents were like, we're moving. So my mom had this baby in April and then we moved that June. So we had five kids. I come from the eldest of five. We moved our entire house our bunny. My dad drove the U-Haul, I think, with one or two of my brothers, and then my mom had us in the van. And we drove up to Oregon. And we stayed with my grandparents, I think, for the first tiny bit. And then we moved. We had a couple moves until we really settled in where my parents are now. My parents have been in that same house, I think, since I graduated. So probably about 20 years.
0: Wow. And how was the transition for you? It was an interesting transition. I grew up with my
1: grandmother. So my maternal grandmother was the one that I remember during my childhood that raised me, fed me, clothed me, protected me, loved me. And I grew up with my aunts and uncles. So they were almost like siblings. I was their little baby sister, which they still treat me to this day. Like, I'm still that little Loki. But she passed when I was 12, which was a very big thing at the time. And so it would take me most of my life to figure out what that meant. And back the last couple of years, I think I actually unpacked that. But it was a transition because I went from being only one child with two friends on the same block to I have three little brothers and now I have a little sister. And my sister and I are 12 years apart, There's a pretty big age gap. And then we end up in Oregon. My father lives on the river. We were going river rafting. We were doing activities I was not doing as a child. There was the woods. So even alone with just the environment, it was a change, but it was good. I think we adapted pretty well. And then it just became home. Oregon was it. And that's where it's been for 30 years.
0: Oh my goodness. Well, I'm biased, but the West Coast, I do believe is the best coast. One question I like to ask people is more during the college years, because I feel like your 20s is this defining decade. And so I always like to hear how people chose the college they went to and why, because it seems to set them off this path professionally that sets them off for the rest of their life. Effectively, where did you go to college?
1: I didn't play sports. I blew my knee out my freshman year of high school, so I had two knee surgeries within six months of each other. So I ended up on the speech and debate team, which I had been on the forensics League since I was in the seventh grade, and I carried it all the
0: way through middle school. I didn't know there was such a thing as a forensics league, but I love that
1: I even lettered in it. I have a letter with a thing, so this was my thing. I traveled with it, and that helped a lot with public speaking later on in my life like that was a thing but I wanted to go to Brown. So I wanted to go to a UC school or Brown University. But we lived in Oregon. I did a lot of speech tournaments at U of O. So I thought, okay, it's a state school. I could get into U of O. But I could not figure out what I wanted to major in. One year, I was like, oh, I think I'm going to be a pediatrician. It was like, no, that's not going to really happen. Then I got stuck on, I'm going to be an actress. I'm going to act. I said, um, Like, I love movies, I want to be encapsulated in film forever. Like, This is the thing. <laughs> Was not in theater. This is very funny. I did not think about food at all. Food was not a thing on my radar. It was graphic designing, but something artistic. I loved art. So I thought, well, maybe I'll be an art historian. And then maybe I can curate or own a gallery. I loved art. I loved creating. I end up going to Europe for the summer. And I was sort of taking my time. Like I was a late driver. It was probably the regression of being the eldest. It was like, I don't want to do these. So I go to Europe. My parents buy me a URL pass. I've gone for almost eight weeks, six to eight weeks on the URL. So I get there. But that's where my first kitchen job was. It was in Denmark because I ended up staying in Denmark for six months. And that kitchen job, I came back home and I said, oh, I think I want to cook. And my great grandmother said, no, no more chefs. (laughs) She said, can we get a lawyer or a doctor or something? And my dad said, it's like a fish out of water. It makes no sense. And I thought, no, I think this is what I want to do. It's awaken something inside of me. this trip to Italy, eating Italian food. My mom is an incredible chef. Like she's an incredible cook. And there were certain things I didn't like to eat. And we had been exposed to so much as children. But I got back and I got this job with this friend of my mom's who owned this Italian catering company. And she was an art history major and she spoke Italian fluently. And one of her chefs she hired, I talked They said, what about culinary school? And he said, okay. Don't go to these, go to this one. And this is before like the internet's fully a thing. I still had to write out my application, send it in with my check or money order, You know, this application fee. And I settled on New England Culinary Institute. Out of everything I possibly could have done, I chose this path <laughs> unknowing what it would lead to eventually. So I went, I went in the winter of like probably one of the worst storms they had had in I was ill prepared (laughs) for the weather. I didn't even have the proper coat at the time or boots. And so I end up in Vermont, Essex Junction, Vermont, in Burlington, Vermont, on a very cold, wintering, (laughs) blustery day. And it's pitch black every day at three (laughs) o'clock. We get up, it's pitch black. And it was regimented. It was wild. I didn't know what I was doing. It was hard. The first few months were hard because I hadn't been away from my family like that. Europe was different because I was going with friends and family and having a joyful time. This next time was studying and being very specific. and Then you start to watch everyone else's personalities slip away. But you're living in dorms and it's party city and you're turning 21 in an environment but then have to be at 5 a.m. for meat fabrication. Those are funny stories. It was all these things. But it taught me routine. And it was one of those things that if you don't put something in, you're getting nothing out of it. So you have to put in what you're going to get out and then take what you can. And you would slowly watch everyone sort of drop around you and realize this was not for the faint of heart. And then you realize, oh, chefs are a really specific type of person. It molds you into something very specific. They had a hospitality program, a really great one. So you're walking out with a degree in business, a degree in this or in culinary arts. That's where I ended going, it was wild. It was fun.
0: I love it. I remember my first year on the East Coast, I graduated university. And I told my parents I'd leave for a year or two ended up being like 10 and a half years. But that first winter in the East Coast, you can't prepare a Californian or a West Coaster for that first East Coast winter. And I remember I had what I thought was a worm jacket on. But it was straight out of a scene of Dumb and Dumber where I had like the frosted hair and my nose was dripping all the way down to my chin. And I'm like, but I loved it. And it made me realize this is what I love, even though it was miserable and cold. I'm like, oh, this is how I know I'm an East Coaster at heart. And so it sounds like you experienced the same level of love for the East Coast and also the school. So what was your first job out of college then?
1: I had several interns. So you do school the semester and then you would break off and do an internship. So my very first internship, I went back to Portland, Oregon. I was trying really hard to get to El Bulli. That was like my number one. I wouldn't say a regret. But I do wish I had experience El Bulli at one point before they closed. So I worked really hard to get them to send me to Europe. So I go to Portland at this place called In Good Taste. That was this really cool food store, almost like a surface, Table, Williams Sonoma, but they taught classes. I met the chef there and we became good friends. And so that was my first internship. So it wasn't anything hard. It was sort of an introduction into Here are these classes. Do you want to be a person that teaches classes? Because that was sort of the thing in the early aughts, right? It was about people teaching classes, giving out recipes. People loved it. It was the experience. You can fly to Europe and have this experience for a week or 10 days. That was my first internship. Went back to school. My second internship was in San Francisco. I was going to go to France. And a group of white cisgender males decided that I was not allowed to go to France because they didn't think that my attitude... (laughs) in a place like that. Neki was run by men during that time, that era. And I was really disheartened on a level I think that was hard to put into words because it was something I wanted so badly was to go to Europe and have that experience. So I ended up at the CCA. It's basically sixty chefs. It's in San Francisco. It's a board of sixty chefs and they have everyone come in from Jack in the Box to I mean, it could be anybody whose company comes in and says, can you make this product for us? So it was really a test kitchen. And that's where I learned about food photography. That's where I learned about tasting ingredients. You would open the spice cabinet and it was just these flavors and we would be testing flavors and everything was done on a scale. It was really extraordinary experience and I got paid very little for my internship. But when my time was up, the allotted hours that I needed for school, he offered me an incredible amount of money. To stay. And I chose not to, I wanted to move to LA. I thought I'm going to go to LA, make it a job at Sherry yard at Spago or somebody like we're going to LA, we're leaving San Francisco. That was my first offer for a big girl job out of college. So I ended up moving to Los Angeles, which would then change really the course of my life for the next eight years. So my first job in LA was at Grace Restaurant that was owned by Neil and Amy Frazier. And the pastry chef at the time was Elizabeth Belkin, who was my mentor. And she had just come from Campanile, which is Nancy Silverton in Markville. And I ended up, my aunt had her friends and family invite to the opening of the restaurant because I went to go see Sherry Yard, but she wasn't hiring anyone at the time. Actually, I talked to Wolfgang. (laughs) wasn't even talking to Sherry. It was a very funny conversation. And then I was supposed to go to a restaurant called Basti at the time and it didn't work out. So she's like, let me take you this opening. We go to the opening. My aunt's like, hey, Neil, do you have any openings on your line? And he said, no. So you have to understand during culinary school, I did not want to be a pastry chef. I did not want to have anything to do with pastry. There were not enough women of color or who looked like me in the kitchen. So I wanted to be a chef. I wanted to be someone who ran this program. And the only opening was in pastry. And he said, there's one, come back tomorrow and talked to Elizabeth. And I did. And then Elizabeth hired me. And then that was it. I think I realized, oh, I'm actually good at this pastry thing. I should stay here. I think a few months later, I would end up at Campanile. So I had these two jobs and a retail job, J.Crew at the time. So I had three jobs.
0: Oh, my goodness. For those who don't know, and I have a, a few friends who are either savory or pastry chefs, but for the listeners who don't know the difference, can you describe the mindset needed for either of them? It sounds like the pastry chef title chose you. But if you could, all over again, in hindsight, would you have chosen the savory route if you could have?
1: It was interesting because during that time period, men dominated the pastry world. There were very few women at the time that were doing things. So the kitchen's got that brigade system. It's been going for centuries. There's one person over a bunch of people, and it's over your department, basically. So pastry gets embedded in there in a way but it's still its own structure so that that executive pastry chef is the head over that department at first for me i grew up watching so many cooking shows yan can cook chefs of the world frugal like all of these things julia childs of course and i thought oh you get to do all these things you don't do one thing you do all of these dishes and you can pick any country and you can pick any spice you want you can learn how to do the thing and that's all i knew Pastry was so foreign that it was, well, why would I want to make that? That takes time. So I think over time, I learned the process. And then I realized, oh, I enjoy this process. And then, oh, I love this routine. And then, oh, this can be better in a way. And this is the last course. And then people love the last course. So then all these little pieces started clicking together. So if I look back in hindsight. If I had known what pastry was, I probably would have picked pastry from the beginning. And then I would have delved deeper into things like chocolate making or cake making. In school, I only had one month of pastry. Technically, I think it was two combined. And they were bread making classes. And bread making is an entirely different skill set than anything else. I mean, it's, it's own entity. I do nothing. I do not make breads. I do not make cakes. <laughs> but when you're a pastry chef, the beauty of being a pastry chef is that you have to do a little bit of everything. So it's sort of an all-purpose cap that you're wearing. And I have to tell everyone I'm really good at composing a dish. So I understand our flavor profile. I want to make sure we're going to balance this thing out, which then in turn became part of my ice cream thing. So from the beginning, I had always made ice cream and then it became a thing. But I think I would have gone. I would have probably studied in Europe more on the pastry end because everything pulls from France. So you're classically trained in French cooking when you do go to culinary school. And then once you get out, you sort of either can get rid of that. But like I tell everyone, you just need to know the basics. If you know the basics, especially I would say to my assistants that are new, very green, you've got to learn the basics and then you can break as many rules as you want. As soon as you can secure a foundation and what it is that you're doing.
0: So not to fast forward your whole career, but then at what point, once you went into the pastry route, did you say ice cream? That is it for me. (laughs)
1: It was never, ever, ever on my radar. So Claudia Fleming, one of the most incredible pastry chefs who wrote a book called The Last Course, She wrote the Grammar's and Tavern, it went out of print, I want to say, 15 years ago. It's an incredible book. They just reprinted it. It's out now. And she really influenced an entire generation of pastry chefs. And it's so funny because every dish has a bit of ice cream on there. So that was a thing. You would get this dish and there would be a little bit of ice cream. Campanile. It was like, oh, this is an Italian restaurant. So there's going to be an ice cream of some sort, some sort of gelato. Ice cream was a component. It was always a component. It was its own thing. It had a mind of its own, but it played with every flavor on the plate. There was never a point where I went, I'm going to make ice cream. But I tell everyone, I think what was the introduction to it was I did a dinner in Nashville at the Hutton Hotel, the James Beard traveling chef circuit goes around the country and it's beard winners slash people that have been nominated and they come up with a menu. They'll go to a hotel, the hotel hosts them, they'll come up with the menu. And they did it at our hotel the year that I was there. And my chef at the time said, hey, do you want to do the dessert course? And I thought, oh, uh, cool. I'm going to be with these people that are doing big things. It's very exciting. We like had 250 people. So I call my parents and my aunt, everyone comes out. It was very cool bought tickets. They were there. They stayed at the hotel. I like to challenge myself at times. I don't need to be challenging myself, which will be, let me do this the first time for this event. So I've never done this before, but I will do it this (laughs) time. And so I decided our Paco Jet, which is this wild Swiss invention. It's an incredible ice cream machine that most restaurants have. It was broken. So I had a classic Cuisinart. You freeze the bowl, $40 machine. We had two bowls. I thought I'm going to make ice cream.
0: Bars. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm already getting stress high listening to this story.
1: <laughs> I'm going to make ice cream bars for 250 of my closest friends, and then I'm going to hand dip them all in a magic shell, and this is going to be our dessert. And so this is what I did for two weeks. A project. <laughs> it was the prequel. It was the hey, this is setting you up. Like you've manifested this thing unconsciously, and this is your future. And I serve this ice cream. And it was a really beautiful moment. I got a standing ovation. It was really extraordinary. And I thought, oh, and I didn't think anything of it. I just put it away and kept it moving. And then six or nine months later, (laughs) it would be the creamery.
0: You know something is up when you get a standing ovation for an ice cream dish. And not to foreshadow it, but I know one of your friends who did try one of your new flavors when you started Saturated, they cried. So there's a lot of emotion embedded in your ice cream and your work. So I want to talk about that. And I know that you've experimented and produced hundreds and hundreds. I think it's like I saw one article that said 350 different flavors. So the idea is you've seen the world, you've tasted the world, and now you incorporate so many different little parts of that into the flavors. So fast forward, you get this standing ovation serving 250 people one hand dipping when your machine broke down of ice cream desserts. And people were just so emotional and gave you a standing ovation. How did that evolve then to opening up Saturated during the pandemic of all times?
1: A lot happened between those two things. I leave that job and then I get offered another job at another company. They were looking for a baker. I'm like, I'm not a baker. I'm a pastry chef. And so I get this job. I don't think I'm there for maybe a week, maybe possibly two weeks. And then there's the, hey, we're opening a creamery in two and a half weeks. And I thought, oh, okay. And they're like, well, we're going to move you from this one. And my chef at the time was upset. He's like, Oh, they're gonna take you from me. So I get moved from there to this creamery. And there's nothing and nothing on terms of there are no small wares, there are no recipes, which is major when you're doing anything. And there wasn't even the machine to actually make the base in to cook the base. There was a steam kettle. I thought there's no way we're making ice cream in a steam kettle like that's just not gonna happen. It was a lot of days of time crunching and then imposter syndrome starts coming up to the back of your throat. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm feeling like really overwhelmed. And I would wake up. I was like, I don't know if I can do this job. And I thought, well, you've been making ice cream forever. You're training this and you have this grit. You're trained to do this thing. You know how to do this thing. You've been in the worst case scenario of a restaurant situation. You can get out of this. So I made it happen within two and a half weeks and it was unreal. And it was a four-year process. I was making ice cream for my boss and her father, the owners at the time. And I had read an article by Bourdain. It was not an article. It was like a little snippet. He was helping somebody write their book or they're writing a book about Italian food. And he said something like, if you don't do it for yourself, then it doesn't matter. If you do it for somebody else, it's not going to work. And I really took that to heart. And I thought, oh, I'm making this ice cream for them. So like nothing was clicking the face wasn't clicking, I would wake up in the middle of the night for six months thinking like, oh, I've overcooked it. I've got to go back into this research. I'm not doing this correctly. And then when I made that slight turn is when it would change everything. And then I would realize, oh, I'm gonna do it for me. I'm going to make this flavor for myself. And then we'll see how it comes out. And then that's how I was able to achieve 300 flavors within that time period with them. Because it wasn't about them. It was about what I can do and how far I can push myself and my own boundaries. And my team, of course. I can't learn if my team's not learning. It was the most extraordinary time of my career. And I actually learned more than I've ever learned on any job front. (laughs) I wore so many hats. It was outrageous because in the end it was just about how does this scoop of ice cream going to make this person feel it's taking hours and days, which doesn't matter. It's just part of the work, but What does this make you feel when you have it? Are you going to come back and have more? Are you going to tell your friends about it? Are you never coming back again?
0: How powerful. What you said was so magnetic to me in that the unlock of creating ice cream for yourself versus anybody else, whether it's your boss or the store owners, what was the difference in making something for yourself versus for them? So the idea is you have this obvious grit and tenacity, but what was the difference? Because you would still wake up in the middle of the night thinking about the best flavors and profiles to produce what was the difference then to say, no, this is going to be for me?
1: For a long time, I've always been sort of the wizard behind the curtain. I'm a two on the Enneagram. (laughs) I am a devout helper and worker, but I have big dreams. I have these big goals and I have some sort of talent. So everything's opportunity. That's how we get to the next level. It takes people to help us get to the next place. But I would always put myself behind another person. When I realized there was a voice internally that said, if you want to get a thing, you're going to have to do it for you. And if you don't do it for you, then you're just going to keep doing this thing continuously. That's really what separated it. I remember her dad one day came in. I was making mint chocolate chip, which is actually, it's not easy. You have to hit that balance of the right amount of mint versus the right amount of chocolate, the amount of chip. And people like green more than they care about the white version. It's very interesting. And I remember he came and I did several different variations of it. He finally said, oh, that one's good. That one's going to be the right one. And there was something about the way that it was delivered to me that I didn't like that. And I thought, oh, no, it actually could be better because this is what you like. This is not what I like. And I'm going to make it better because I know it'll taste better. So that's sort of what <laughs> the switch for me was, no, I spent all of this time being trained, working being in these environments that I now have part launched to really push myself to a place that if I leave here, then I can create these things for what I want it to be, which eventually would become my own thing.
0: And how long did it take for you to have those feelings of giving someone a product that you liked, didn't love, and you're like, oh, that's pretty good. But you weren't happy, but you realized, hey, I should start my own thing and really develop my brand.
1: I think it was probably a few years in, It came down to I was serving someone else their dream and I will loosely use the term taking advantage of, even though anyone that I know that will be listening to this will think otherwise that I was taking advantage of. But I had allowed it to become more about what they needed more than what I needed. And the one thing I do have to say about the shutdown and COVID coming was that it really did flip the industry on its back because it wasn't built on a really rock solid foundation because quality of life didn't really matter. It didn't matter who was working for you. You know, I was driving a hundred miles a day by that point to different locations, but it wasn't mine. I didn't own it. I had no ownership and no partnership, but I was an asset only because I was able to give the ice cream. I was fundamentally the only person that knew how to make the ice cream. We couldn't afford to keep a lot of my assistants. So there was a lot of, we've got to go to this one. we got to make it for this. There were growing pains, of course, in any business, but it became a difference of wants. But I was still working and I was determined to figure it out. But at the same time, you know, I had gotten a divorce during that time. and had so many changes during work throughout that four-year process, which was really wild. Although I'm still creating, right? But I'm still creating these things. I'm still trying to figure this thing out. I'm trying to dig deeper. But I was really unhappy with work. I need to figure out how to get out of work because it was not becoming fun anymore. And that's when you have to stop. So when it's no longer serving you the way it's supposed to, and you can't do the work that you're supposed to be doing, then you just have to stop. And that's easy to say that when you're not in it. But when you're in it, the bowl is so cloudy. You just are used to it. It came to a difference of personalities. In the end, I would end up getting laid off permanently. And it would be the best thing that could happen to me and the most necessary thing. But I was not able to allow myself to leave before then.
0: So it's been almost three years. And I remember March of 2020, all this uncertainty, all this stress, anxiety for the world, not just in individual households in my mind. So that's when you left that firm and that creamery. And then did you think right away, I'm going to start my own line? What was your thoughts? Because the mind share was all about the pandemic and COVID and what's going on and six feet And I'm like, what are we going to do? <laughs> so what were you thinking?
1: It was wild. For a couple of years before, maybe a year prior, I had this really wonderful friend. We've had a really quick relationship. In fact, her father, they own Adam Breezy Farms in Kentucky. And her father makes ice cream every summer. And they were looking for an ice cream maker, a batch freezer. And the person that sold us ours was friends with them. And he's like, oh, come down. And so we met briefly and then we stayed in contact. And she was just really beautiful light. And she was always so supportive of me. And I went to go visit her with another friend. And it was amazing. And then she would get cancer and the cancer would utterly take over. And it was really sad. But the last time I saw her, I had a really great time. It was really beautiful. That would be the last time I would ever see her. She told us about CBD, which I had known about because a long time ago, I always said, you know what? I would be very cool if you could put weed in everything. And this was like back in LA, 15, 20 years. Like that was too early. I was too early. She said the CBD had really helped her. And I thought, oh, and then on the drive home, I thought, whoa, hospice, invoking emotion, nostalgia, those last moments. So what if medicine's administered in a thing that you love, but what would that invoke in the end for you? So this is like some existential, like I'm just going into these different things, not thinking of it. So I do end up making my first batch, which was not with CBD. And I didn't know how to measure anything. So that was a wild ride for whoever. <laughs> so, so I'm chewing on this. So at the creamery, we're making dairy ice cream. Then I end up making non-dairy ice cream because I want everyone to have an experience. I want you to have an experience. But I also want you to know that you don't have to have the same coconut experience. You can have a chocolate dairy-free experience. You can have a strawberry dairy-free experience. You need to have this. So I was working on that, and then it hit me, and I'm like, well, why don't I just make dairy-free CBD ice cream? <laughs> I was like, well, this doesn't make any sense, but it made sense in my mind. I was so ready to leave, and it was dwindling down, and COVID was coming. It was there. Nashville got hit with a tornado in early March, and I had type A flu. I didn't have the Rona. I actually had type A flu. I was very sick, and I kept asking, what are our plans? And- Work was becoming very hard to be at. It was just a personality thing at this point. I remember thinking, okay, I don't know what's going to happen. So St. Patty's Day, I get to work and something said, internally, in my gut, you're not coming back here. And I thought, okay. And I just went, oh, sure. And I did my work. Everyone got laid off. All that was left was our director of operations and me. And we had two stores that we had to like figure out how we're going to open and close them. And I thought, how are we still open And the shutdown was days later? And I remember as I left, I bought two pints of ice cream. Which is very strange. I don't because I don't have a sweet tooth by nature. So I buy these two pints of ice cream. They're both dairy-free. And I leave. And then I get a phone call the next day from my old boss. And we had a very long, deep relationship. She counted on me for a lot of things. We had been through a lot. I just remember it was a very terse conversation. And she thanked me. Okay, thank you. And, da, 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 da. and I thought, okay, well, I hope you're okay because you're the C-O-O of your father's company. You've got a lot of layoffs. Like, it's a big deal, But blah, blah. She like basically shake hands over the phone, even terms. And then I hung up the phone. And I wasn't sure if I was upset or reprieved. I didn't know. I couldn't really peg that emotion at the time. And I called my dad. I'm very close to my father. He's always my first phone call. He's always the first person I send any interviews to, anything. I called him. I said, I got laid off. And he said, we better start that business. And I was, what? what? What is wrong with you? I don't have a job. We're shutting down. There's this virus. And he's like, it'll be fine. That was the momentum. And then within days, I had an LLC. I had all that stuff set up. I had a name. I, had a I was going, 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 going. I would not let anyone in the house. I was very, no one can be around me. It's COVID. So by June, I had a friend who was a company. And she said, I can get us a pop-up at this CBD cafe here in town. And she said, do you have an ice cream machine? I said, no. And then days later, one hits my doorstep because <laughs> my dad's like, oh, I bought you a machine, this Italian machine, and you asked for it. And so the 65-pound stainless steel <laughs> machine hits the doorstep.
0: Oh, I'm my like gosh. Dragging
1: it in, and the poor UPS guy, It's was like, this the whole thing. And that's where it started. I'm really a true believer when something no longer serves you, the only way is for you to cut that thing off or figure out how to cut a thing off or remove it. And then something else would come in fully. So at the end of that, we had the start of a company. So I get laid off of March 2020 and we'll sign a book deal, which was one of my largest dreams possible as a young chef, two days before Christmas Eve of 2020.
0: So in six months, you started a business, got a book deal and all the things in our prior conversation you mentioned the uncertainty of not knowing you want to be a pastry chef early on. And then now not knowing if you're going to be a writer, but you're going to write a cookbook. It's all these things. And it's clear that you're comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's a beautiful thing.
1: I really like how you phrase that. Yes. All of these things I had wanted, but how do you know you're able to get them? And the universe is tricky, but she will give you what you need. She always comes through. Always. I always laugh. I thought it was not plausible in my 20s or 30s. It was just not going to happen. All these things had to happen to get this thing. And I had to mourn that. I had to mourn that. And there's a lot more baggage that came with that leaving of that job. And I had to mourn that loss and chew on it and get rid of it. And it was hard. But then it was like, it's done. We're going to put our full focus on what we know we can do and what we have, which can be really overwhelming. And in a time of full uncertainty. So many places shuttered, never to reopen again, which was devastating for people. And then everyone pivoted. It was the best pivot because then I went, we are done here. This chapter is closed because I remember leaving that day. And I said, I'm not ever working for anyone else again. I spoke that into existence and then I'd become my own boss. I was like, okay, well, nobody prepared me for this, but no definitely prepared me <laughs> for becoming a writer, which is a thing I had always had in the back of my mind was I want to write about food. But again, that didn't seem like it was a doable thing.
0: Can you share with listeners how you came up with the name Saturated and then to give them a summary of the business?
1: So Saturated, I had a different name. It was going to be California Skies. I met a woman who was on server once at a restaurant. We were talking about something and she said, oh my God, her name is Callie. And I said, oh, that's cute. She says, oh, it's short for California Skies. And I went, oh, that's great. <laughs> opening out the CBD company, California Skies makes sense. And she goes, yeah, I was... Hi one day in California when I was younger, you know, as a teenager, she's like, and I looked at this and I was like, oh, California skies are so beautiful. I was like, okay, this is just an even better story. And so I kept that. And then I went home one Christmas to see my dear, wonderful sister friend, Sister Brooke, and she works for an ice cream company in the Bay Area and she's incredible. And our joke is like, if we came together, we'd just rule all ice cream worlds <laughs> in every realm. Like, we're eating. And she goes, I think you should call it saturated because the market's saturated. And I went, <laughs> so that's where it went. And then that's ben. <laughs> Brooke is really responsible for naming the company. It's just a plant-based. So I use plant-based in a way of there are people that are lactose intolerant that can't have milk at all. Like milk is not comfortable for most human beings, but they tolerate it. So this is just to have something that doesn't upset your stomach. I don't call it vegan. There are no animal products in it, but also there's times where I would like to put something in there honey, or maybe it's a marshmallow of some sort, but it was just going to be, well, it just is a plant-based hemp-derived CBD ice cream. And it comes with or without. The taste is no different. If I gave them to you side by side, you would never know the difference. It was really important for me to have the texture that's correct, that it gives you that nice coating mouth feel, that it's indulgent, that it tastes good, and that you have different flavor profiles, that you're not just in this one, area that you're able to have a good flavor and that it's consistent. So the first two years are really interesting. I mean the first year in 2020 I made a lot of ice cream. The second year I made a lot of ice cream, but I was also writing a manuscript, which I again is having a solopreneurship as well is having your actual business and then having a writing thing going on, which I was still prepared for. So <laughs> it took a lot, but I learned massive lessons and I wouldn't change anything because it was all supposed to be the way that it was. So saturated is just, we're going to year three. I know after last summer that it has to get co-packed and distributed was sort of the big thing because there's nothing I want more than to see that container, that pint on a shelf in a store. But I've made probably hand-packed, labeled, delivered over 6,000 units of ice cream by myself. So it's just wild to know that I'm literally the ice cream lady.
0: Amazing. For those who don't know much about CBD, for your ice cream consumer saturated with the CBD line, what should people feel when they eat it?
1: CBD is really so interesting and it comes in three different variations and they have their own little drop-offs. But I use isolate powder. So it's stripped away. It strips the waxes, the terpenes, It takes all of that out. And it's really this powder that's like about 99.9% pure. It's tasteless. It absorbs really well into fat, which is, we use a coconut base, so it's like it absorbs perfectly into it. You have full spectrum and broad spectrum. I think in the state, it's 0.3% is the legal amount in Tennessee. CBD is legal here, but actual THC is not legal in Tennessee at all. Also, no one knows if that's gonna happen. So some people feel like they just relax or it's not an auditory high. So you're not gonna feel like I'm losing control. It's more of, oh, maybe I had a knee pain and the knee pain dissipated, or maybe I had my back pain and I was feeling a little anxiety feel. So, you know, the key thing is no one claims to claim anything with CBD. We're just here to bring you joy in the form of ice cream. (laughs) So, do what you will. So, it's incredible what it's become. I mean, you have drinks now, you have gummies. Some people swear by the gummy, it helps them sleep. There are some CBDs that help you sleep really well. There are some CBDs that help you feel awake, that give you energy. There's so many different variations of it. The thing behind CBD is the lack of knowledge. So people are afraid to have it because they think, I really think immediately go to weed. I'm going to be high. I'm not going to be able to function. That's not what it is. You have bath bombs. You have, I mean, the drink industry is booming right now with it. Your local donut shop probably puts it in their donuts. So I thought, why not ice cream to start there? I don't have an interest in THC at this time. Not that it can't happen, but for mainstream, it was easier to put a product out that didn't have a taste. So the terpenes are what gives it the smell and taste when you have the plant. It was just easier to be like, here's this thing. It's tasteless, but you can taste the ice cream, but there could be an effect in the end. There was a study done that said that you sleep better with ice cream before bed, so you should eat ice cream before bed. I'm telling everyone who's listening. And then you have a little CBD. <laughs> you possibly might have excellent sleep. We do not know. So yeah, it's not a thing to be afraid of. I think more people should be open to trying it and finding products that come from a reputable source. That usually they have the code that you can scan. It'll tell you where it came from, who tested it, and really do some research and then try a product. The best way I've learned is people will always start with an edible before they go into anything else. So the ice cream technically isn't edible because it has a CBD in it. And if you're not ready for the edible, you don't have to do it. There's the topicals. There's even you can smoke it. So yeah, that's how we got there. But it worked out really well because the anxiety and stress levels of people were really high during the beginning stages of the pandemic. And it's still so funny. Like, I'll have someone like, oh, my nun, you're a mother. would love the CBD ice cream. Like, it's just the demographic is really interesting because <laughs> I think mean, 18 to 30 is about anxiety and stress. For everyone else over 30 is about pain relief. <laughs> so, I was like, oh, pain relief makes sense then. <laughs> Let's say you're having a terrible period. Like, eat this ice cream, have the CBD, you know? But again, we don't claim anything that has to do with medical. That got ruined pretty early on by most planning to fix
0: a thing. You stick to the flavor profile and it's delicious on its own. So that's wonderful. For me, CBD was a pandemic discovery and I had never tried it before. And to your point about education, I didn't know anything about it. And I just thought, oh, not a big weed consumer. And then I started using it for sleep and also anxiety, pain, all the things during the pandemic. And it was, for me, very helpful. And so I can see the benefits of it now, but it took a few attempts and trial and error what's the dose and how does it work for me and the different strains to your point. And so now I'm a big believer and I tell everybody, oh, this is one of the most effective things for me that helped me sleep. And so I'm a big advocate for it. You've traveled around the world. So I know you went to Europe You're from the West Coast. You also traveled in Asia. And I know we talked about this before, but going to Japan was life changing for me. And it sounded like that for you. But your background also in terms of ethnicity, you have black, you have Filipino, you have Mexican. Can you describe your heritage and also how that has shaped how you create either at saturated and we can get into that, but also just along your professional path?
1: Funny, because I feel the more which is the beauty of the world, the more you find a person from a different background, culture, and you start to have children with them, you get married into the family, you start to expand your life. It's so intersectional. And I had to learn that because I think I needed to figure out what my identity was because I grew up with such a specific name, Lokalani Alabanza. The origins are Lokalani's Hawaiian, it's the flower of Maui, it means little red rose. And then Alabanza is the highest praise you can give God in Spanish, which is basically hallelujah. So I grew up with no one had those names. No one was looking like me. I mean, when I see the Alabanza side, I'm like, oh, this makes sense. We all look the same. So my parental side is my dad's side. His mom was half Filipino, half Mexican. And on his birth certificate, they wrote out that she was Creole, which would just go by skin color at the time, and that his dad was Creole. So my dad was born in 58 when it was still a territory, Hawaii. And our Filipino family came over from the Philippines. They landed in Oahu. They were picking rice in the fields at the time. There's this immigration story for us on the Alabanza side, I grew up in a predominantly Black neighborhood with a Black grandmother who was from the South, who had six children. So I am so grateful for having that experience. So it taught me a lot about just the community itself. And then my mom would marry my stepdad, whose mom is Danish, and his dad is of Sicilian descent. She came over, she immigrated my Fama when she was 19 to America, and she's an incredible story. She's been my Fama, which is father's mother in Danish, at nine years old, I didn't realize I was starving for something else. So I had this extraordinary Black culture that I grew up in. I was learning about my Filipino culture, but not necessarily the Mexican one. Because my great-grandmother was Mexican, and I thought she was Filipino, and I did a family tree one year. She goes, no, I'm Mexican. Her last name was De La Cruz. And I went, I'm very confused. <laughs> so that's how I learned about that. But with all of these things mixing together, it was really extraordinary. You know, going to Denmark really opened my eyes, Farmers brought... This thing I learned about how you set a table, how you presented a table, how you do certain things. And so that just added another layer. But when I got out into the world by myself, it was still a well, who are you? What are you? What do you like? What makes you excited? One thing was a voracious reader as a child and as a young adult. I'm trying to get back into it now. I realized food was always going to tell the story. Whether it was my grandmother's greens or her fried snapper, it was this tale that I knew that was a part of who I am. And when I was to my dad's side, they all make this movie in a very specific way. You know, my dad would roast a pig in the backyard of his sister's house. He was in Hawaii. And then I have my farm or every Christmas we have a reason which is this rice pudding that you eat right before Christmas Eve dinner. So all of these things are a part of who you make me who I am. And they're all food related that's what brings people together. No matter what happens in life, you can sit down and have a meal with somebody. You don't have to have the same music interests. You don't have to have the same political interests, but food is really powerful and it evokes a lot of emotion. So it was the only way to find myself was in food. The sadness that I find out of it is that my grandmother had passed when I was so young, but she also didn't write anything down and she didn't have any cookbooks. She had one. It was this Betty Crocker cookbook. And my mom ended up with it. And it was this book that I would constantly make things out of. Before I learned about food photography, I was like, these are looking terrible. These eyes, <laughs> But for me, what it did is it put me on a journey of just trying to find nostalgia in a way that would invoke a feeling or I would have something and it would take me back to that place in time. And so that's when I realized, oh, food can do this. You can really put everything you have into something and then feed it to somebody. You don't feed it to them, you just serve it to them. And they feed themselves and they're taken to a place. So the heritage I have is so deeply rooted in everything that I do. And what's really cool is that it's still being peeled away. I just had this really beautiful experience in Nashville right before Halloween. I have a wonderful friend who's a chocolate sommelier. she's like, she's amazing. And we did chocolate tasting. And she served this drink and she told me the story of the woman who made it and that she was going back to find her Mexican roots. It hit me so hard that I had this emotional reaction because I thought, oh my gosh, these are my ancestors too, that I haven't tapped into. Because I think of my four grandmothers, my two great grandmothers on both sides, one on either side of my maternal and paternal grandmother. And I carry them deeply with me. And so I realized that, oh, this is part of me. I can go and look for my Mexican roots. This is where our family comes from. For a moment there, I thought I was only allowed to be this person from this community. When it's like, no, all of these women are part of me. That really moved me and made me more aware of where I came from. It runs very deep and it's a part of basically everything that I do food-wise.
0: Last question for at least Saturated. Where can people find out more, buy some? Where do people discover more saturated ice cream? You can find us on
1: Instagram for now, but as soon as we relaunch the website, we'll be ready and available.
0: Can people buy it on Instagram? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can DM me 100%. Wonderful. So listeners can go to Instagram Saturated Ice Cream and find out more and buy their product until the rebranding goes through. I'm going to pivot to the questions I ask everybody starting with inspiration. And I know in our prior conversation, you talked about your grandmothers and history and ethnicity and all of that as inspiration. But if I could ask directly, who or what inspires you?
1: I have the most incredible women around me in my life right now. I don't even use luck often. I am so fortunate. They're just awesome. They're extraordinary humans and they all have a thing going on. They're all hustling. They're all grinding. They are moms. There are some are not moms. Some are wives who are not wives and relationships are not relationships. They're doing everything possible to get themselves to the next level and still being supportive of the other people around them. And I am always just so grateful that I have them to look at because I can just look at a post and go, I'm so proud of you for doing this thing or having a conversation And everyone is just able and ready for the next person and always available. 2022 was not an easy year for me for many reasons, but writing a book and building this business was a lot that I was not prepared for, but they were always waiting around the corner for me. And so they've inspired me to do better and to be better in a way that I'm proud of for myself, that I can look at myself and say, I'm proud of myself. They've been inspiring. And of course, I love reading and watching TV or looking, going to the museum and I'm always inspired by something <laughs> or what somebody's doing. I just watched that Toni Morrison documentary and I went, oh, <laughs> was everything. And that was an inspiring moment.
0: I love it. Well, speaking of reading, I remember you wrote an article a while back that talked about this woman 200 years ago who made ice cream. And the idea is holy crap. This is you 180 years later in Tennessee making ice cream and with such beautiful history. But the question is transitioning to role models. Did you have a role model or a mentor? Was it prior people you've never met before and read about? Who are your role models?
1: Sarah Estelle is who I talk about a lot because without that spirit, I don't know if the book would have taken on... It wouldn't have become the idea that it was or is now. Sarah Estelle was from North Carolina, so she hits Nashville. 1840 to 1860. So, this is right before the Civil War. She's not enslaved. She's a free woman. She's a Black woman. And she opens this thriving business. In fact, she had two businesses. One was a boarding house, and the other one was an ice cream saloon, which is what they would call them back in the day. And so she was here and she was known as the queen of ice cream in Nashville, Tennessee. And, you know, 180 years later, here I am, Black female, you know, I'm free. And I'm making ice cream. And so it's so serendipitous to think that we are on the same time in a way that really sparked a major inspiration in me in a way that I had not felt before, because I could fully recognize myself in someone and see something and then say, oh, I can make something out of this. And that's what set forth my obsession of nostalgia and food history. I've always loved food history, but then it became like a thing. And I was like, I need to find all of the Black Americans who made ice cream in America. <laughs> so I've been on this journey. Elizabeth Belkin has been a huge mentor for me. And she is who taught me the things that I know as being a pastry chef. And, and I love her. She loves me. I love her. I respect her. And she's what honed me into the pastry chef that I am now. And to have the skills that I have and to trust those instincts. Working with Dahlia at... Campanile was another one. I mean, they were just all these extraordinary women. They had big roles and they led their team. They knew what they were doing. That was always major. Amazing. What are you most proud of? I am most proud of where I am. I survived. I got through 2022. I'm most proud of that, really believing that the only way out is through. You just have to get through it. No matter what you have to get through. Because... I'm going to have to do this work regardless. I'm going to do this work no matter what.
0: What is your superpower? I have something in common with anybody.
1: (laughs) I can get anyone to talk to me, let me hold their baby, anything. It's insane. My mom is like that, but I'm on it like maybe times 10 more than her. There's nothing like human connection. And sometimes I don't want to be. But when you are moved, everyone just wants to be seen smiled at, recognized, and that will change lives. It changes my life. If someone just sees me and smiles and just knows that I need a hug, that's it. You just ask them how they're doing. Be do the biggest thing of the
0: day. I know this sounds crazy to our listeners, but the idea that you have the superpower of connection and empathy and relating to people, I actually bet that comes through with your ice cream flavors because the idea is you have this mission to have people feel emotions. So if your superpower is that, I bet that Having a bite of your ice cream is like that scene in Ratatouille where at the very end, the food critic eats a bowl and he has this childhood memory as a flashback. I'm like, oh, my God. And that's really your mission of trying to have people emote when they're eating and consuming your ice cream. I love that. So one thing that I always ask everybody, if we haven't talked about it already, is failure. It's the name of the show. And the reason I named it this is, one, it's clickbaity. It's like sensational as the F word. But the idea is, I do believe, and whether it's a solopreneur, entrepreneur, investor, educator, athlete, whoever, we all face struggles and adversity and ultimately on the other side of it, extreme amount of growth. For you, I'm guessing there's a lot more in the trial and error of being a line cook, a pastry chef and going through all the crazy hard work and hours because I think the schedule of a chef is (laughs) insane and I don't know how you guys do it. If you can share with our listeners, maybe one or two of the most impactful struggles or failures that you've had and then ultimately what the growth was from it.
1: The latest one, really was when I was laid off of the last job that I had. It was a huge struggle. It was a huge failure. And a lot of that was about me not standing up for myself. Anyone who's out there, if you're younger, no matter where your position you're in, and you know that you're worth more than what you're being given because no one should have to give and not receive something back. I had to learn a really big lesson on how to be okay with standing up for myself, with being okay with drawing boundaries, which can be in any relationship, whether it's platonic, romantic, professional, and then knowing why I said I survived, which was even coming out of something that I attached myself so emotionally to, mentally and physically to, and then when it's cut off, how you get out of that. So the end result was, oh, I have these things. I started this business and I have this book. So it was a valuable lesson for me to no longer stand behind the curtain, but to actually be the star of the show, which is the thing I have shied away from for so long, it is that fear of success that had always had that thing. It was like, if I make it, then what happens after this thing? I had to just learn to let go. I went to the school of hard knocks for four years, and then I graduated. <laughs> and then the other one for me in my own private life was getting divorced. I heard this really incredible quote when I watched the Toni Morrison documentary, which everyone should watch. You don't reinvent yourself, you reimagine yourself. And I thought that was really powerful because why would you start over when you can just reimagine how this thing could be if it's still you?
0: And build on it. Yeah,
1: we build on that thing. And so I didn't have a lot of confidence coming out of it and I didn't know how to put my life back together after so long. So that was a really big thing. And that took work, a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of letting go. Shadow work is not fun for anybody, but it's necessary. So those things coincided together. So they overlap one another. And then in the end, I just reimagined who I am. So it's cool now because I feel like I just had this conversation the day with a friend about you sort of implode and then you go and find little bits of yourself. When you're like, oh, I remember this or oh, I don't like this, version of do that. I want to make a new version of this thing. So moving on. So those lessons have put me where I am now, but I'm still working on like putting myself first because, you know, number twos want to just help everybody.
0: <laughs> Something you said really resonated where you have a fear of success and that's such a amazing statement to say out loud because a lot of people fear failure, but know it may be the opposite to hold you back. And it reminds me of this one lesson that I thought was so powerful that was taught to me by this poker player. And she taught me how to bet in poker. And she says, a lot of people play to not lose. You have to play to win. And it blew my mind. I'm like, repeat that, please. And she goes, when you bet, a lot of people are like, well, let's just play. And if I lose that, I'm fine. She goes, no, you bet to win. It blew my mind because it's the point of the fear of success. I never thought I'm playing to win. I just thought I'd be playing to stay in the next hand. And she goes, well, are you trying to do that, but also win each hand? And I was like, oh my gosh. And it was this therapeutic session of poker playing. But the idea is to play to win and not just to play to not lose. And I love that. But I also love what you said is reimagine, not reinvent, because it is not starting over. You're just building on top of. So I absolutely love that. If you could speak to Loki right after culinary school, what would you tell her?
1: I would have told her just to do it. Just do the thing. Do not overthink. Do this thing.
0: That's it. Love it. Of all the flavors that you've come up with, you have to have favorites. I have two kids and some people say you're not supposed to have your favorites, but I do from time to time. (laughs) So if you could maybe come up with a handful of your favorite flavors of all the hundreds you come up with, what are some of your favorites and why? And I will mention to the audience for those looking for certain flavors, the one that had your friend cry was the Magnolia flavor, just for those listeners out there. But I'm sure you have some personal favorites and if you can share the stories behind that.
1: So the Magnolia and Getame Honey was some of my best work. (laughs) It was really beautiful. It was my maternal great grandmother was named Magnolia and she died the year before I was born. So I've never got to meet her in her physical form. So I thought it's that play of Magnolia in the South. Magnolia trees are really specific. There's history behind these things. And so I made this flavor and it was just beautiful. It's really beautiful. So I'm very proud of that one. I always say chocolate malted crunch because it's thrifty. If you grew up in California, the thrifty stores, you have that. California babies ate thrifty ice cream. I'm always going to be very proud of the hot chicken ice cream, which is wild, but it is national hot chicken ice cream. And it's an ode to Prince's hot chicken. They are the creators of hot chicken. So let's be very clear. They are the ones that brought it to the world. <laughs> It is a global phenomenon because of this Black American Southern family. And I love the ambrosia salad because it's just weird anyways. And then it just made sense to be an ice cream. Some people are like, no, these things make sense. But they make sense in my mind. And so they come out. And there's ones that I'm proud of that I've done. I'm like, oh, good job. Because in the book, there's 100 flavors. And that was hard to choose a bunch of flavors. And then here you are. But I really do love saturated I call it SBS, but sunflower butter stracciatella. Most people, you know, can't have peanuts and that. So I thought the next best thing would be a sunflower seed butter. But it's that same color as the sunflower seed butter. And it's just loaded with flexo chocolate. And it's just so delicious. And it's hearty. And it's good. And I'm very proud
0: of that flavor. All right. I'm going to try all those flavors that I haven't tried just yet. And last question. What's next for Lokalani Alabanza?
1: Lokalani Alabanza is finishing up this book. I'm very excited. I have no expectations. I try very hard not to have any expectations in life, but I will feel full once it's done. I'll end some relief. It's a thing I always wanted. And she's going to be here soon. And everyone's like, you've been in labor for a long time. I'm like, I have not yet to have a baby. <laughs> I like, this, is this is my child. <laughs> my baby will be born soon. We're just open. It's a new year. Just knowing that I can... Transcend from any trauma, and that I can be filled with joy no matter what. I'm just welcoming whatever's coming down the pipeline, the seeds that I've planted, and just watch them come up. But who knows? I need to start making some new ice cream flavors. Is really what I need to be doing. I have one that I tried, but I'm going to make soon.
0: I love it. Well, I love all the creativity that I've heard emerge from the pandemic. And I'm super excited to try all your new flavors. I'm also just so honored to have a conversation with the new queen of ice cream. So Lukalani, thank you so much for this amazing conversation.
1: Thank you. This has been absolutely wonderful.